Let me welcome you to week five out of our series out of Mark's gospel account that we are calling The Way of Jesus. The idea, as we said each week on the front end of these messages, the, the idea behind this series is that there's a really a tendency in all of us to try to decide for ourselves who Jesus is and uh, you know, emphasize the parts of him that we like and edit out the parts of him that really challenge us that we don't like. And what we're left is a Jesus that's created in our image. The nice part of that is that a Jesus we create in our image is really easy to follow because he never challenges us. He never contradicts us. He never makes us rethink any of our most deeply held convictions. The downside of that is that a Jesus that we create in our image cannot heal us, cannot change us, cannot transform us, Because that Jesus does not exist. He's not real. He doesn't have substance. He's just a projection of ourselves. And so the the vision of this church, you see it on our walls and our emails and all that kind of stuff. but, But let me just say it one more time. The vision of this church is to see lives transformed by Jesus. That's our vision, which is really, it's birthed from this assumption that, get ready for it, Jesus can actually transform lives. He's been doing it for 2,000 years at least. He's really good at it. But what we need more than anything else, if we want to be transformed by Jesus, is the real Jesus. And that's what Mark's gospel account delivers. So, I mentioned this on the front end of our series, but we're, we're fitting this entire, I think it's 14 weeks start to finish, we're fitting this entire walk through Mark's gospel between the second week in January we started and Easter, uh, which means we don't have time to go through Mark verse by verse. So what we've been kind of forced to do is just... Um, pick and choose the events in Jesus' life that emphasize key moments, key themes, and, and pivotal times. And um, so we're starting that today. If, if you're hopping in for the first time, today's actually a great week to do it because for the first four weeks of this series, we, we, we camped out in chapter one, really laying the foundation for who Jesus is. But from here on out, if, if, if you want to think of it this way, for specifically the next four weeks, we're basically going to be uh, going through a miniature series within our sermon series as a whole. And the theme of these next four weeks specifically is going to be the lordship of Jesus. So what we're going to look at specifically for the next four weeks is uh, key stories recorded in Mark's gospel account that emphasize uh, various ways that Jesus is Lord and various things that Jesus is Lord over. And just to kind of give you a preview, for the next four weeks, if you tune in, you're going to hear about how Jesus is Lord over, first off, works-based religion, You're going to hear about how Jesus is Lord over the unpredictable and intimidating circumstances that we find ourselves in in this life. You're going to hear how Jesus is Lord over the forces of evil that we have no power over in and of our own strength. And then fourthly, you're going to hear how Jesus is Lord over time itself. Ooh, what does Ryan mean by that? Got to tune in, I guess. So with that, we're going to get to our text this morning. Um, It's actually two passages that are back-to-back recorded at the end of chapter 2 and the beginning of chapter 3. So let me read Mark chapter 2, verse 23, all the way to Mark chapter 3, verse 6. On the Sabbath, he, being Jesus, was going through the grain fields, and his disciples began to make their way, picking some heads of grain. The Pharisees said to him, Look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? He said to them, Have you never read what David and those who were with him did when he was in need and hungry, how he entered the house of God in the time of Abiathar, the high priest, and ate the sacred bread, which is not lawful for anyone to eat except the priests, and also gave some to his companions? Then he told them, the Sabbath was made for man 
and not man for the Sabbath. Therefore, the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Now he, being Jesus, entered the synagogue again. And a man was there who had a paralyzed hand. In order to accuse him, they were watching him closely to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath. He told the man with the paralyzed hand, stand before us. Then he said to them, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do what is good or to do what is evil, to save life or to kill? But they were silent. After looking around at them with anger and sorrow at the hardness of their hearts, he told the man, Stretch out your hand. So he stretched it out, and his hand was restored. Immediately, the Pharisees went out and started plotting with the Herodians against him how they might destroy him. This is God's word. So in this passage that we're looking at today, Jesus makes a claim that is so over the top uh, that what happens for the first time in Jesus' life as recorded by Mark People go from just being annoyed by him or offended by him um, to, to actively looking for a way to murder him. And what Jesus says here, this is the way that it would have been understood by the religious leaders in the story that we just read. What Jesus says here is not just that he's here to fix religion because we've, we've sort of gotten it wrong. You know, there's, there's aspects that we were right about, but we just need some, some adjustments What Jesus says here is not that he's come to usher in a new religion because we just haven't thought of the right one yet. What Jesus says here in no uncertain terms is that he is here to end religion and to replace it with himself. So we're going to look at this passage today, which is really two incidents back to back, both revolving around this thing called the Sabbath. And there's just two themes I want to draw out of these passages. The first is the insufficiency of religion, and the second is the sufficiency of of Jesus Christ. So with that, let's talk about the, the insufficiency of religion. In the second incident recorded here in chapter 3, I'm not going to read it again because I just read it to you, but, but the, the flyover is this. You have Jesus in the synagogue on the Sabbath, and a man comes in with my version, says a paralyzed hand. Your version might say a shriveled hand or a withered hand. The point is his hand did not function properly. Uh, and so the Pharisees, when they see this, they, they begin looking at Jesus to see if they can accuse him of breaking uh, the Sabbath. Uh, in response to this, Jesus gets angry at them. He heals the man. And then at the end of this, uh, Mark includes this really interesting detail that in the wake of this particular event, the Pharisees begin plotting together with another group that we'll get back to called the Herodians to see how they might kill Jesus. So to understand what what Mark wants us to see here, really I think the entire passage revolves around the question, why was Jesus angry? If we're going to understand what what this is really meant to to drive home, we just need to understand Jesus' anger here. So the law of God commanded uh, that we were to rest, that human beings are actually designed to rest and require rest, and so God commanded that we rest one day in seven. That's the Sabbath. But by the time of Jesus' day, the religious leaders had added um, all kinds of rules and regulations that really had nothing to do with anything God said. They just sort of built a bunch of hedges and fences around the Sabbath. And so by Jesus' day, there were 39 types of activities that they decided you couldn't do on the Sabbath. And so when this man walks in, they're looking to see whether or not Jesus breaks one of their regulations. Now, let me just try um, try to put it to you this way. If you were one of the first readers of this account, 
So you, you don't have any baggage when it comes to Jesus or when it comes to Christianity. You just know that everybody seems to have a really strong opinion about this one particular Jewish carpenter rabbi that died and people are saying came back to life. When you read this account for the first time, I'm willing to bet that most people would assume that Jesus would at least have something positive to say to the religious leaders here. Because Jesus is a, is a Jewish rabbi. So, you know, you would think, all right, he's got to at least admire the dedication of the Pharisees. He's got to at least admire, admire the heart behind how much they wanted to get as far away from possible from even being accused of maybe breaking one of God's laws. You know, he's going to challenge them, but he's going to at least, you know, hey, I appreciate it. You know, there's a little bit of admiration here, but kind of surprisingly, not only does Jesus have no admiration, he has anger for these people. Anger at the religious leaders for what they had done with the Sabbath. And the reason for that is because the essence of the Sabbath or the spirit of the Sabbath, really, it's its original intended purpose. And Jesus, it's even mentioned here in a subtle way in chapter 3. The Sabbath was about restoring what had been diminished. It was about replenishing what had been drained. That's why human beings were commanded to rest from their work one day in seven. And actually, if you go back to the Old Testament, God even commanded there, there be a Sabbath for the land, meaning you let the land itself rest one year in seven. And the purpose of that rest is so that there could be a restoration so that after the restoration, whatever that is, a human being or the land itself could then flourish it could then operate as it was intended. So when you understand the heart behind the Sabbath, you understand there is no possible better way to keep the Sabbath, to honor the spirit of the Sabbath, than for Jesus to restore this man's paralyzed, withered, shriveled hand so that he could flourish as God intended. And yet, these Pharisees don't want Jesus to do this because they're so obsessed with the rules that they made up. So, so to answer the question plainly, why is Jesus mad? He's mad because look at how Mark is portraying the religious leaders in Jesus' day. All right, they're, they're hard-hearted instead of compassionate. Uh, they're, they're ex, I mean, just absolutely obsessed with the rules that they themselves made up rather than caring for the person that God has placed right, right in front of them. They're tribal, uh, they're self-obsessed, they're deeply insecure, they're extremely judgmental, and it's not very long until their firmly held beliefs cause them to leverage violence against somebody that they deem as a threat to them. Right, so the, the irony here is that the hearts of the religious leaders that are supposed to be the leaders that really reveal the heart of God to his people, the hearts of the religious leaders are exactly as, as withered as this man's hand. And there's two things that, that Mark wrote this account for us to understand, two, two things to draw from this. The first is, is Mark is, is letting us into this scene that took place in Jesus' life, first off to show us the insufficiency of religion. The point here is that uh, all religion has the power to do for you. All religion has the power to do for anybody is exactly what it did for these Pharisees, meaning it can, it can morally restrain a human heart but it can't touch the deep problems of the human heart. And actually, historically speaking, and the Bible makes it plain, all religion ultimately does is it exacerbates and dials up to 10 the insecurity, the fear, and the pride of the human heart. That's Mark's first point. But right alongside that, he's showing this, this early battle between Jesus and the religious leaders to drive home the point that the lifestyle that Jesus has come to invite us into that once was referred to as the way that we now refer to as Christianity, that lifestyle is nothing like religion. And I imagine this was an incredibly important thing 
for Mark to make plain when Christianity was getting off the ground. Because again, if you were a person living in the first century um, you know, Galilee area, hearing about Jesus, you would assume if all you knew about him was he's a Jewish religious leader, you'd assume, well, he's got to have a lot in common with the other Jewish religious leaders. But the point of this account, when it shows you how angry Jesus was at the religious leaders, and it shows how the religious leaders were willing to unite with the Herodians to kill Jesus, the point is that from, from the beginning of Jesus's ministry, the most religious people in the day understood that whatever else Jesus is, he's not one of us. He's not a different shade of what we believe. He's a threat that must be eliminated. So if you go back to the end of chapter 2 in verse 27, Jesus makes this really profound statement that I think is close to the heart of this passage. It's, he, says, the sun, he says, the Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. Now with that statement, Jesus is, he's essentially comparing two spiritual paradigms. In one, the law, the law of God, the moral law is a burden that enslaves you. That, that's represented by the man being made for the Sabbath. In the other paradigm, that same moral law, it actually, it, it frees you, it liberates you. And so what Jesus is saying here is, is, is you can have two different people who are approaching the same moral law, and in one case, that law is a burden that leads to death. In the other case, that same law uh, is something that leads to life. And the two paradigms that Jesus is comparing and contrasting here that he's holding up to show us are not even remotely similar to one another is on the one hand, man-made religion, and on the other, this thing we call the gospel of Jesus Christ. So let's, let's just take a minute to make sure that we understand exactly how fundamentally opposed these two philosophies are. All right, most people in the world today believe that if there is a God, and actually what I'm about to tell you is... is one of the things that I think is, is most natural for the human heart. Most people in the world today believe that if there is a God, it's just, it's, it's common sense that you relate to that God by being good. Every single religion that people have ever come up with operates on that principle. Now, of course, when you start holding them up alongside one another, religions differ on who God is or what exactly God expects. But at the end of the day, when you boil it down to its essence... The essence of religion as a way of life is I obey, therefore I'm accepted. Christianity comes along, and not only is Christianity different than that, it completely reverses the order of that. Because where every religion says I obey, therefore I'm accepted, Christianity says I am accepted the moment that I put my trust in Jesus Christ, and therefore I obey. And so if, if you want to think of it in, in, in these terms, if, if, if religion operates on the principle that morality leads to salvation, Christianity operates on the exact opposite principle. It's that the salvation that God has made freely available by grace through faith in the name of Jesus, the moment I stop trying to earn that and I receive that by grace through faith in the name of Jesus, that salvation is mine today. And what that will do is it burrows more deeply into my heart as it will lead to a life of morality, a life of transformed behavior in response to the salvation that's already mine. Hopefully you can see there, those are two radically different paradigms that create two radically different kinds of people that live radically different lives, create radically different communities and, and even different societies. And what Mark is showing us in this particular passage is one particular way that a person who is merely religious 
And a person who is a genuine follower of Jesus will differ with one another. And it boils down to how they view the moral law. Which is actually, this, this is a little bit of a, of a subject of much debate within Christianity. All right, so in religion, the purpose of the moral law is primarily about you. The purpose of the law is to assure you that you're a good person. It's to, it's to give you the things that you need to do so that you can cover your basis and look out for yourself. So, so when a, a deeply religious person approaches the law, he, they, they approach the law exactly the way Mark is showing us the Pharisees did. The, the purpose of the law is to make sure that by living according to it and working really hard to keep it, I can feel good about myself, I can look good in the eyes of other people, and most importantly, so I can put God in my debt, essentially. The thought process is, if I keep the law well enough, then God has to bless me. God has to answer my prayers. God would never let somebody that's lived as good a life as me experience any of the really bad suffering that other people experience. And then, of course, at the end of my life, he owes me a ticket to heaven. It's my get-out-of-hell-free card kind of thing. And so ironically, the, the reason, the Bible says, the reason that religious people approach the law is, is for fundamentally self-centered reasons. It's actually about them. Now, what, what we're seeing here, and what, what the gospel accounts and the life of Jesus and specifically the New Testament goes on to show, is that within the context of the gospel of Jesus Christ and the lifestyle that that creates that we refer to as Christianity, the law of God has a completely different purpose. And I just want to point this out. This is a topic of a lot of debate. I mean, a lot of people have asked the question and arrived at different answers, and maybe you've asked this yourself, what's the purpose of the law for a Christian? If we really believe that we're saved by the works of another named Jesus, then what's the purpose of the law? You know, if we disregard it and live however we want, that's not right. But if we're still living to it in a legalistic way, trying to earn God's love, well, that's not right either. So what's the purpose of the law? And I'll just, here it is. For a Christian, the law is not there to make us feel good about ourselves. It's to get us out of ourselves entirely. That's the purpose of the law. The purpose of the law is to, is to show us what it means to live in response to the love and the grace that God has freely poured out on us by grace through faith in the name of Jesus. To quote Jesus himself, the purpose of the law, once you give your life to Jesus, is just to show you and tell you what it means to love the Lord your God with your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. That's the purpose of it. It's not about earning anything or feeling good about whatever. It's just about reflecting a life of gratitude for what God has done for you in Jesus. So the point here, first and foremost, we're, we're, ma- we're, we're meant to see how utterly different religion is from the gospel of Jesus. But Mark actually goes a step further here and, and drives home the point that not only is the gospel different than religion, but actually the, gosp- the gospel in the end, when it's fully understood and fully lived out, the lifestyle that the gospel of Jesus creates fails to fit into any category of this world. And the specific way Mark drives that home for us is in this statement that looks like a throwaway line in chapter 3, verse 6. I said we get back to it. You noticed in the wake of this healing, we're told that the Pharisees from then on decided to start working together with the Herodians to figure out how they could kill Jesus. It might not mean a whole lot to us some 2,000 years removed from this text, but that's an incredibly significant statement that really is meant to drive home one of the primary themes of the New Testament. So so let's talk for a minute here about, about who the Herodians were. The Herodians, as their name suggests, were supporters of the Herods. You may have heard of Herod the Great and Herod Antipas and all those people. They were the dynasty that ruled Israel, representing the Roman occupying power. 
So this is the way that the Roman Empire worked. Wherever Rome went, uh, they would set up their rulers, which would subtly usher in their Greco-Roman culture. You know, the Greco-Roman approach to the body and sexuality, to spirituality and pluralism, just their way of life. And so they would, they would conquer these people groups, but the way that they maintain control is they would set up their own leaders who would bring in this Greco-Roman pagan value system with them. So sympathize with the Pharisees for a minute here. If some occupying force, you know, conquered our culture and had these very foreign values that they imposed on us, a lot of people understandably felt extremely threatened by that. They felt like that's going to rob us of our ethnic identity and that's going to pollute our children and all that kind of stuff. So within all of these people groups that they conquered, there was always these resistance movements and that's who the Pharisees were. The Pharisees were a holdout from this, you know, pagan, Greco-Roman, Hellenistic value system. And and Pharisees, as you're probably aware, they emphasize living according to the Bible and being clean and being pure and being holy and being undefiled and being set apart. And so when I say this, just understand that when Pharisees viewed Herodians, they were not just viewing people that they disagreed with. When a Pharisee viewed a Herodian, they were viewing who they deemed to be the fundamental problem with the world. Now, if you've heard me preach for a while, you might see where I'm going with this, but just pause here for a moment. When you consider the dynamics here between Pharisees and Herodians, you realize exactly how accurate the Bible is when it says there's nothing new under the sun. Because here we are 2,000 years after Mark lived and died, living in a culture that as far as he was concerned, he didn't even know existed, and yet all these years later, the Pharisees and the Herodians are still duking it out. Rock em, sock em, robots. And if you wanted to translate that to today's terms, here we go. The Herodians are the blue states. And the Pharisees are the red states. Right? The Herodians represented this mindset that might sound familiar to you. Uh, it's relativism. It's, hey, if it feels right, then do it. Who cares what people say is right or wrong? You can't let anybody tell you what you do. That's the Greco-Roman way of life. Whereas the Pharisees represented a lifestyle that said, now we're going to emphasize traditional values and biblical morality. Now, when when you consider how different those two groups of people were and how utterly at odds they were with one another, you understand how insane it is that these two people decided to collaborate and work together on anything because they didn't see eye to eye on anything. But the one thing that they did see eye to eye on, the one thing they locked arms on was that Jesus had to go. And what Mark is trying to emphasize for us here is something that I don't know it's ever been more important for us to understand than it is now, as divided as our, as our culture is. What Mark is trying to show us here is that the gospel of Jesus Christ is not religion or irreligion. The gospel of Jesus Christ is not moralism. It's certainly not relativism. The gospel of Jesus Christ is not traditional family values, but it's certainly not do whatever feels good. The gospel of Jesus Christ creates a lifestyle that does not fit neatly into any of the camps, categories, ideologies, or philosophies of this world. And the point of chapter 3, verse 6, these two groups plotting together to end Jesus, is that for the people who are most deeply embedded in the camps, the philosophies, the ideologies of this world, they have always and they will always see the real Jesus of the Bible as a threat. So let's ask a question there. Why? 
Okay, I understand that Jesus is something different than these camps, but why are they threatened by him? And to answer that question, let's just talk specifically about our culture for a moment. I mentioned this earlier, but what you're seeing in our culture today is these, these same basic two approaches to life played out. Right? They have different names in our culture, but, but if you had to just kind of put it on one end of the spectrum and the other, on, on one end, uh, th- there's an approach to life that you could simply call moral conformity, which is driven by a mindset that says, I'm going to try as hard as I can to be as good a person as I can and live the best life that I can. Right? On the other end of the spectrum, and this is the growing mindset in our increasingly secular culture, is not, it's not moral conformity, it's what you could just call self-discovery. It's, it's driven by a mindset that says, I'm not going to let anybody impose their archaic sets of right and wrong on me. And, and actually, it's, it's, it's deeply inauthentic to let anybody tell you what's right and wrong. You've got to decide that for yourself and live however you want. So you have moral conformity and self-discovery. What the Bible says, and this, is kind of sh- this was shocking to me the first time I heard someone explain it to me, but what the Bible teaches is that as different as those two approaches to life seem, they actually are the same in the sense that they are both ways that people try to live as as our own lords and saviors and maintain control of our own lives. And there is no parable in the Bible that illustrates this more powerfully and clearly than Jesus' parable of the prodigal son. If If you're familiar with it, in the parable of the prodigal son, you have the younger son, who goes off and lives however he wants. That's, that's the Herodian lifestyle. That's the relativistic kind of secular lifestyle. And then you have on the other end, the older son who stays in the father's estate and he works very hard, but he doesn't do that out of love for the father. He does that in the hope that he can put the father in his debt and now his father should owe him. And that's represented by the pharisaical approach to life, the deeply moralistic approach to life. And those are the two basic approaches to life that seem extremely different, but they're actually two sides of the same coin. Some people cast off the Bible and any kind of external authority source to them with a mindset that says, I'm just going to do whatever I want. Nobody can tell me otherwise. Now, that's a very obvious way of living as your own Lord and Savior. But there's another approach to life that says, no, I'm going to try as hard as I can to be as good as I can and keep every rule that I can, and then God will owe me. And then God has to bless me and answer my prayers and save me. And what that is, you're not serving God when you live that way. You're using your morality as this pathetic attempt to get God to serve you. You're trying to manipulate omnipotence. Not only, the Bible says, not only are those two ways of life not all that different, but they they create and they lead to the same self-centeredness that everybody still agrees is a bad thing. One of the only things that I think our entire culture can still agree on is that self-righteousness is gross. And what's really interesting is moralism and secularism both lead to it and all the problems that come with it. Because moralism says, no, the good people like us are in, but the bad people are out. They're what's wrong with the world. So we look down on them, we despise them, and that leads to all kinds of issues. It justifies all kinds of behavior that Scripture says is unbecoming of a follower of Jesus. So it leads to self-righteousness. But what's interesting is secularism leads to self-righteousness just as much as moralism does. Right? Secularism basically says, no, it's the progressive, open-minded people like us that are in, and it's the intolerant that are out. It's the narrow-minded that are out. And it leads to just as much self-righteousness because... Here's this for, how's this for irony? If you're intolerant toward people that you think are intolerant, you're still intolerant. If you're self-righteous toward people that you think are self-righteous, 
congratulations, the call's coming from inside the house. You're still self-righteous. The gospel comes along and it says something completely different than any of these ideologies or camps or philosophies or worldviews because the gospel doesn't say the good people are in and the bad people are out or else we would all be out. And the gospel does not say the progressive open-minded people are in and the intolerant are out. Here's what the gospel says. It boils down to this. The humble are in and the proud are out. That's it. Anybody can get in. You just have to admit how badly you need grace. The gospel creates this, this posture of heart that says, I don't, get, I don't get to look down on anybody for anything because I'm not in the kingdom of God on my own merit. I'm in on the merit of another. I depend completely on the grace of God poured out on me through Jesus Christ. And biblically speaking, when that message takes root in a human heart and, and, and a person who holds to that begins to follow the whole Jesus of the Bible, even when it means you gotta be at odds with the Pharisees and the Herodians of your particular day and age, what that does is it undoes the insecurity and the tribalism, and the judgmentalism, and the self-righteousness that the rest of the world rightly hates about religiosity. Deep breath. We're moving. Two questions before I, before, I keep, before I get to our last point, which will be shorter than the first point. First question. Why did I spend so much time on this idea knowing full well that the majority of people that listen to this message already believe the gospel? Here's why. Because despite what we say, and despite what we believe, the default function of the human heart is to slide back into a religious mindset that says, I obey, therefore I am accepted. And unless we are, unless we are always driving the gospel into our own hearts and literally taking our thoughts and our feelings and our emotions before God in prayer and arguing with our hearts and literally saying to ourselves, I hope you do this, unless we're always saying to ourselves, why do I feel like that if I believe I'm a sinner saved by grace? Why do, why do I feel superior to anybody or inferior to anybody if I believe I'm a sinner saved by grace? Why am I worried that this, this, this terribly difficult thing that God is walking me through right now, why am I worried that that's not going to work out if I really believe I'm a sinner saved by grace? And why am I angry at God because I feel like he's not giving me the good life that I'm owed if I believe I'm a Because none of those mindsets go with I'm a sinner saved by grace. Those mindsets go with I'm owed a good life because I've lived a good life. And it's entirely possible to be a legitimate follower of Jesus, but to be running on the fuel of religiosity. And so unless we're constantly crawling back to the gospel and driving it into our own hearts, then, then we're going to spiral back into this, this spiritual deadness and this tribalism and this judgmentalism and this self-righteousness that Mark puts on display in a really vivid way in this account here in, in specifically chapter three, verses one through six. But secondly, right along with that, I gotta imagine that there's a number of people listening to this. You have not made the decision to put your trust in Jesus, but you're curious. You, you wanna figure this out for yourself. You know, you're seeking. And I hope there's more than a few people listening to this that are in that place right now. And I just wanna say to you personally, the reason I thought this idea was worth camping out on is because in my experience talking with people outside the faith, most people that either reject Christianity altogether or offended by Christianity or, or don't care one way or the other about it because they see it as ignorable, they view Christianity that way because they view Christianity as just another religion. Like it's just another version of every other religion. You can kind of rightly hold all of them up alongside one another and yeah, they argue about who's God and what exactly is the ethical system, but it's basically the same message. And I just want to tell you, and I hope this encourages you, if that is your mindset, 
or it's the mindset of anybody that you know and love, Mark recorded these accounts to speak to you personally and tell you nothing could be further from the truth. If Christianity was just another religion, then religious people would have loved Jesus and he would have loved them. That's not what you see in the gospel accounts. And if you're going to dismiss Christianity, you should at least understand what it is you're dismissing. Also, important side note, you shouldn't dismiss Christianity. All right? Here's a plug. On to the last idea. We talked about the insufficiency of religion. Now let's talk about the sufficiency of Jesus. Chapter 2, verses 27 and 28. Very famous line. Then Jesus told them, The Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. Therefore, the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. So first off, when Jesus makes the statement that the Sabbath is made for man, what he's saying first and foremost, just take it at face value, is that you and I need Sabbath. That word Sabbath means deep rest or deep peace. It's somewhat a synonym for the, the, the Hebrew concept of shalom. And you notice Jesus doesn't just say, God's people need Sabbath, or my disciples should Sabbath. He says the Sabbath is created for people. That means that, that you and I, regardless of what we believe, we are designed to require a regular rhythm of physical and mental rest from our work, or we will experience physical and mental breakdown from our work. And I don't know that any society in human history has proven that point more than the one that you're living in right now. We're a giant social experiment about what happens if human beings have no boundaries, guidelines, or guardrails on their work. Spoiler alert, nothing good happens. But, but the deeper meaning of the Sabbath, there's a, there's a surface-level physical aspect to it, but the deeper meaning of the Sabbath is meant to point us to the reality that not only do we need rest in a physical and mental se- uh, sense, but we also require a deep, divine, if you want to call it, REM, rest of the soul. And when Jesus makes this thundering claim that he is the Lord of the Sabbath, that is in no uncertain terms a claim to divinity. You can't say, I'm the Lord over the law of God unless you're making yourself equal with God. That's what that claim is. That's how they understood it. When Jesus says, I'm the Lord of the Sabbath, he's saying, I am the author and the source of the rest that your soul is designed to need. Here's what I mean. Back in the fire department, I think I went the whole month of January without telling you I used to be a firefighter. (laughs) I was worried you were starting to forget. So I used to be a firefighter. (laughs) Used to be a firefighter. And back in the fire department, uh, I worked 24-hour shifts, and, um, and we're not going to put this sermon online because you laughed a little too hard. Now we're going to do it. Now, back in the fire department, I, I worked 24-hour shifts, and um, I worked in a busier part of the county, so it was a rare thing for me to actually get to sleep through the night at the firehouse. But, you know, over the, over the span of, of the, the several years I was in, it did occasionally happen. And after it happened a few times, I noticed this really interesting dynamic. I discovered that sleeping at a firehouse was not the same as sleeping at home. Uh, what I found is that you, you get to this place where you, it's almost like your body knows when you're at a firehouse that you can't really enter into REM sleep. You can't really enter into deep sleep. And so you can be unconscious for eight hours in a row 
but you would still wake up and exhausted. And when I reflect back on that time in my life, I think there's a really profound concept there that God showed me. And I'd like to share it with you, class. Here it is. Here it is. Where you find rest determines the rest that you find. One more time. Where you find rest determines the rest that you find. And what the Bible's telling us cover to cover and what Jesus Christ is personally saying in the passage we're looking at today is that that is exactly as true of you on a spiritual level as it is on a physical level. Meaning until, this is what Christianity posits, this is what Jesus taught, until you find rest in Jesus, then all the rest that you find, no matter where you find that rest, will leave you waking up just as exhausted as you were before. That means no matter how many vacations we take, no matter how much beauty we experience, no matter how much we distract ourselves with pleasure, no matter how boundaried and structured we fill our lives, until we find the deep, divine, REM rest of the soul that's only available in Jesus, we will experience a profound undercurrent of restlessness. Now, I'm reading a book right now called Sacred Fire. It's by Ronald Rollheiser. I was wondering how I was going to end this teaching. I was really struggling with it. And Thursday, as God so often does, he gave me the ending in a book that I'm reading right now. I love this book. It's not like anything I've read before. Sacred Fire by Ronald Rollheiser. And he speaks to this restlessness. I want to share this quote with you. He begins quoting somebody else. It's very heady, so I'll, I'll, I'll take my time in it. He says, In the torment of the insufficiency of everything attainable, we come to understand that here in this life, all symphonies remain unfinished. One more time. In the torment of the insufficiency of everything attainable, we come to understand that here in this life, all symphonies remain unfinished. He then asks the question that perhaps you're asking now. What does it mean to be tormented by the insufficiency of everything attainable? We all experience this daily. This torment is generally an undertow to everyday life. Let me pause. So much of what I've read in this book, I've found that the author is just putting to words something that I felt in some cases over a decade ago. And so with that, I, I just want to point out, there's a good chance that what I'm, what I'm about to read for some of you is going to finally define something that you've been feeling for a long time. <clears throat> this torment is generally an undertow to everyday life. Beauty makes us restless when it should give us peace. The love we experience with others does not fulfill our deep longings. The relationships we have within our families seem too domestic to be fulfilling. This is going to hit hard for somebody. Our job is inadequate to the dreams we have for ourselves. The place we live seems small town in comparison to other places. And if none of that nailed you to the wall, the idea we have for our lives habitually crucifies the reality of our lives and makes us too restless to sit peacefully at our own tables, too restless to sleep peacefully in our own beds, and too restless to be at ease within our own skins. Our lives seem too small for us, 
And we are always waiting for something or somebody to come along and change things so that our real lives as we imagine them might begin. And here's how he ends. To be tormented by restlessness is to be human. To make our peace with that is to come to peace. And we are mature to the degree that our own restlessness is no longer the center of our lives. Now, I love that quote as soon as I read it because it highlights that there is a restlessness that is endemic to the human condition, and we're all compensating for that restlessness with our own self-salvation schemes. Where the Pharisees were compensating for that restlessness with a mindset that says, well, maybe if I just work hard enough, maybe if I just keep the law well enough, maybe if I'm just good enough, then I can finally rest. And for most people listening to this, you're probably not compensating with your restlessness the way a religious leader in first century Judaism was. But the point is, we're all trying to compensate for it somehow. Because since Genesis chapter 3, the human heart has been tormented by restlessness. We're not satisfied with our lives, no matter how much we can distract ourselves from that fact. Because underneath it all, we're not satisfied with ourselves. That's the reason we're so exhausted. And when Jesus Christ entered into human history saying, I am the Lord of the Sabbath, Jesus is saying, I'm the only one that can fix that for you. I'm the only one that can heal that. I'm the only one that can get that restlessness out of the center of your life so so that your life as God intended it can actually begin because, Jesus says, I accomplished the work that you could have never accomplished so that you could find the rest that you never would have found outside of me because he lived the life we should have lived. He died the death that we should have died. And the promise of the gospel is that when we rest in his finished work, we can rest knowing that our heavenly father is satisfied with us so that we can finally begin to be satisfied with life. Let me call the worship team up. We'll close with this. For the last 2,000 years, as Christianity has done what God said it would do, which is enter into every nation, tribe, and tongue, Christianity has manifested itself differently in different cultures, in different times, in different places. But the one overarching command that God has given his people, no matter where we find ourselves, and if you claim to be a Christian, this is God's command to you this morning, God commands us to be holy as he is holy. And in a culture as overworked, and perennially exhausted and restless as ours is, I can think of nothing that would be more holy than a community of people who are deeply at rest and deeply at peace, knowing we have nothing to prove, nothing to hide, and nothing to earn, because the work that we could have never accomplished has been accomplished for us by Jesus. And I'll tell you, No one can give that rest to you other than Jesus. He's the only person that can give you that rest. He's the only person that can make you into that kind of person. He's the only one that can make us into that kind of community because he is who he said he is. He is the Lord of the Sabbath. So we're going to end this service today celebrating communion, which Jesus gave us to remind ourselves of what he did with his death and resurrection so that we could enter into a rest that we would have never been let into apart from his finished work. 
Rachel's going to lead us in one final song. And during that song, you're welcome to approach the table closest to you. Take the bread and the juice. And this last song is, is maybe it's, it's a period of time that you haven't gotten it all this week. Maybe you haven't gotten it longer than you can remember. But this final song is an amazing time for you to just sit before God and still yourself and face the restlessness in your own heart and trace that back to its source. Find out where you're not trusting Jesus, where you're not believing the gospel, where you're asking something or someone else to be and do what only Jesus Christ can be and do for you and lay that before God and ask Jesus to give you the rest that only he can give you. He can and he will because he's the Lord of the Sabbath. That's it and that's all.